Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast, and today we are bringing you an interview I did with a very interesting woman. Christine Comerford is a businesswoman, a serial entrepreneur, and a New York Times bestselling author of books on emotional resilience. She has founded and sold five businesses, has been a board member for more than 36 startups, and has invested in over 200 companies. But before all that high achieving, Christine was a high school dropout who became a teenage lingerie model in New York at the age of 16. She also took vows to become a Buddhist monk and once trained as a geisha, as you do. Christine was in Dublin recently to give leadership talks and to talk about her new book, Power Your Tribe, which is all about how employers and everyone really can get the most out of work and of life. I jumped at the opportunity to sit down and talk to her about her life, to find out how she went from modelling tighty whities for Bloomingdale's as a teen to working for Microsoft in the 1980s, becoming a leading tech entrepreneur and author. We also spoke about her relationship with Microsoft founder Bill Gates. But I began by asking Christine to tell me about where she grew up and what makes her who she is. So, uh, gosh, I, I think uh, I was... I was naturally taught to become emotionally resilient just from the way that I grew up. Um, We moved between, I grew up in uh, two places across the country from each other, um, in the Los Angeles area, Palos Verdes, the suburb of LA, and then Greenwich, Connecticut. We kept moving back and forth from my father's work. So it was like new friends, new place, cold temperature, warm temperature. Yes, exactly. And, um, my parents weren't sure if their marriage was going to work at one point. You know, it was really dodgy. And so um, ultimately, I was kind of tired of being shuttled back and forth and all the uncertainty. And I, uh, I ultimately decided to, to run away. I started working when I was 14. started saving up my money because that's when I had my grand plan. Selling pastries, you know, at the bakery. Saved up a bunch of money. And at 16, I ran away. And when you say ran away, like you literally, like in the, in the fairy tales, you packed a bag and you... You didn't tell anyone you were going or you said, said I'm off or what was it? Um, no, I, I basically said I'm going to New York. I was living in Greenwich, Connecticut at the time. And the, the train was quite convenient. And I said, I'm going to, to New York. You know, you guys figure your stuff out. Right. You because, and this was because of the tension in your family. Too in your much parents. tension. And you could sense it, and it wasn't doing you any good, kind it, of thing. Yes, exactly. And I'd been studying human behavior. You know, I got really interested in human behavior. You know, why, why do people have what appears to be everything, and yet they're still not happy? You know, what is it that, that makes it work? Had you been studying that in your own time? Like, that wasn't part of your high school? Um, it wasn't part of high school. When I was 15, a year earlier, I had I had come across something called EST, which is now called Landmark, which is a personal development seminar. Mm-hmm. And I called up because I wanted to sign up, and they said, come back when you're 18. And I thought, no, <laughs> there's got to be a way around this. And um, what I learned was that you could talk your parents into going if you're a minor. And they went, and then they wrote a letter, then you could go. So I talked my parents into going. They went, good sports that they were. And they wanted to work on their marriage to see if they could figure out their stuff, too. So then I was able to go, and what was so cool about EST was that you learn that life really has no meaning except for what you create, and you are 100% responsible for your experience. So I thought, okay, right on. 
So I'm 100% responsible for my experience. If this isn't working, I'm just going to have a different experience. And I'm going to take the money I've saved up and I'm going to go and... You know, I was so that yeah. led to your decision. Yeah, was that a residential thing, or was that something you went to as a course, or how did it work? Est, uh, uh, where you would go on the weekends. So uh, it was not residential. You would drive there, go to the seminar, come back. Okay. Um, but but what was cool was that I really started to learn, like you know, victim mentality. No, you know, we create our own reality. Our reality is what we say it is. Mm-hmm. So, so I ran away, and it was actually really convenient because my father had an apartment in New York City. Ah, okay. So it's kind of we running to, away yeah, yeah. with comfort. Running away, which is, we're putting up inverted commas here. Which right. I could run away Quotes. to an, an apartment right. in New York City. I'll right, tell you exactly. Much. It was comfy, right? <laughs> but I did have to get a job, yeah. you know. Um, and my my uh, father's uh, bellman was really nice, or the 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 doorman. The, the doorman. The, Thank yeah. you. That's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> The doorman was very nice. He's, he stuck me a key. I knew my dad was going to be gone right. for quite a while. And, you know, really, he lived in Greenwich with my yeah. mom. Um, but he was on a big, long business trip, so it was sort of a, a starter, a, a tester runaway. And um, and I knew I had to get a job, so I started going to modeling agencies because where I grew up in, in Los Angeles, all the young girls would go to modeling school, whether they had potential or not. And their parents would just write the checks. So funny, it was, it? and they just they just fostered this this illusion of us. They told you, know? you all how amazing you were. Yeah, and like it's kind of the opposite in Ireland. A lot of people growing up, and maybe not so much now, but in the past, <laughs> were given the opposite idea of themselves and had to shake that right, off. Right, right, right. Or you like, had to shake off the opposite <laughs> thing. It's like keep writing checks, and we'll sure you'll be a model one day. So they were like ching, right? So, uh, so it was a bit financially motivated. Yeah. <laughs> So imagine my surprise, right, when I went out there to get a job and people were just slamming the doors in my face. So ultimately, um, finally somebody told me why. But you, you know, weren't getting these modeling jobs. I wasn't getting the job. What did they she say? She said, well, basically you're short and you're ugly. <laughs> and that was kind of helpful, though, because at least I understood why the doors were being slammed. But I thought, you know, there's got to be a way around this, okay? I don't think I'm that bad looking. Okay, I'm shorter than, you know, these towering models. And ultimately, what what we, what, after some perseverance, they said, okay, you've got the right hip-waist-bust ratio, so we're going to block off your ugly face and your stumpy legs, and we'll do body shots for Bloomingdale's for lingerie. Now, men think that this is like Victoria's Secret. It, it was like tidy whities It was like boring, ugly, covering everything underwear. It was just catalog shots. But what was interesting was at 16 years old, I was making $26 per hour, which is what I made at 16 years old, which is what I made at 27 years old at Microsoft to write Windows. Whoa. Well, that 11 is years later. Amazing. Okay, we're going to get to Microsoft. Yeah. For now, you were in your not particularly flattering underwear in Bloomingdale's and wherever else. And how long did you do that and what did it teach you? Um, well, it, it really taught me that I wasn't ready to grow up yet because making all that money, um, going to having my fake ID that said I was 26, nobody bothered to ever check. And, and I was going to, you know, CBGBs and Studio 54 and there were a lot of drugs and I was looking around going you know what I don't think I'm ready for this I think if I stick around here I'm going to get really messed up and you were looking around at people who were clearly very messed up yeah well yeah it's like the glamour wore off very quickly like within seriously a couple weeks Mm. I was like oh boy you know so anyway, it was it was a very short stint. I came back home. My mom and I decided to leave dad because just the infidelities continued and we're just like, we're done. 
We drove across the country, um, two separate cars. I'd never driven more than, you know, to the store and back. You drove yourself with yes. all your stuff and she had her stuff. Yes, it. and we went through like a blizzard and I'd never dealt with that. So, you know, it was it was just dramatic. But we got back to Los Angeles and I, I tried to get back into high school and I couldn't relate. I was like, wait, I've been like modeling and like, you know, drinking wine at night and at fancy <laughs> restaurants. So it was like cheerleaders, football games, what? So I talked my way into... High st- to college, and I went to UC San Diego, and they said, well, you kind of have to graduate high school first. That's sort of how it works. Yeah. I thought, there's got to be a way around this. So finally, I just I got through to them, and they transferred my first batch of credits up to high school, and I graduated while I was in college. Right. So anyway. And what did you study, and what, what, what was your college experience like? Uh, I loved studying English literature and art history, totally impractical. But then ultimately, in my part-time job at university, I fell in love with computers. And looking into three more years at college, after two and a half, just to get a computer science degree, I thought, I'll just teach myself and just get a so job. So you went and you read books about it, did you? Or how did that work? I mean, you say teach yourself. It seems like a big thing to teach yourself. Well, if you teach yourself basic, it's, that's a pretty... And they call it basic for a reason. That was the first coding language. Yes, that yeah. was the first language. It was on an Apple IIe, which was a really sure early computer. Techno, uh, listeners will we'll understand exactly what this is. They'll be like, oh my God, <laughs> yeah. why did you do that? But... But, but I noticed what was so cool is if you told a computer the right way, it would then respond. And I thought, whoa, if we communicate in a way that the other party understands, we get what we want. So it further developed this fascination. Um, and then I started going, you know what? Human brains are kind of like computers. It's just the, the meaning of the communication is the message received. It's not, well, I didn't mean that. It doesn't matter. It's mm. what they heard. Whoa, what if we learn how to actually communicate in a way that they hear our intention, even though we're all very different humans? What would that mean? Whoa, that would be crazy cool. So that's fast forward. So, did a you bit. become very uh, competent in all that quite quickly? Did you find it came naturally and you were then suddenly able to code and you could see you had a bit of a gift for this? Was that the way it um, worked? Or? I was never a great programmer, but it made sense to me because humans didn't. So it was easier. <laughs> There's something wrong with my logic if the computer's not responding, right? Um, and that was easier. Um, but I was already pretty burned out from the world. So while I was doing this computer science stuff, I'd become a Buddhist monk when I was 17, <laughs> right? So lingerie, you know, drinking alcohol, underaged, and, you know, suddenly Buddhist monk, celibate, you know, vegetarian, etc. And how was that experience? Um, that, uh, what was interesting about that was, to me, and I hope I don't offend anybody, um, my experience was that it was, there was escapism in a different way. The modeling world was kind of a fake reality, this fake plastic oasis, but the world of being a Buddhist monk, in my experience, was, it was all about transcending our humanity and I thought I think this is the wrong direction I think we have to go into our humanity and deal with our stuff really get to know ourselves go into our shadow then we can really be authentic and be really connected to ourselves then we can love then we can know who we are you know then we can be more genuine so ultimately um, I found that I needed to go in and down you know and so I thought, well, if I'm going to break my vows, you know, I can use my computer science background. Why don't I go where all the stuff is that I haven't experienced yet? Like, guys. 
where are all the desperate nerds? Microsoft. It's perfect. <laughs> so so uh, you just, I believe, rang up Microsoft. Um, I did. I took a multi-pronged approach. Okay. I, I <laughs> rang up Microsoft, and, and I did say Windows is a great idea, but it's a bad design, and if you hire me, I'll fix it. And they did laugh for a while over the phone. Um, but I also sent my resume in. But I sent my resume in as Chris instead of Christine because I had heard all the rumors that it was a man's world there and I didn't want to be discriminated against. So then it got tricky because the recruiting office called me up and said, hey, we want, um, we want to know, um, you know, is Chris there? We would like to talk to him. And I was like, oh, boy. No, Chris isn't here, but I have access to Chris's calendar. Can I book Chris? I wasn't saying him. Yeah. But... I, I had to just book it yeah. so that I could show up and I could show what I had. Um, so you would get that chance. So I just, yeah, I didn't want the door slammed until they saw what my skills were. Mm. So um, anyway, and I'd gotten really lucky because while I was programming at um, writing uh, software for Domino's Pizza at a little teeny outsourcing firm, I was working nights at Houlihan's, which is a restaurant, and all the Microsoft coders would come in. Mm. And I met one of them, and he was helping me learn Windows. And I was doing moonlighting for him as well on the weekends and writing code for him. So I actually did an okay job interviewing for Microsoft. When you turned up um, and you weren't Chris, a man. I was not a man. What, were they, what was the reaction? Uh, it's, it's kind of horrifying, but, but, they, but the guy that I interviewed with, who I will not name, um, basically said, well, you know, chicks can't code said that to your face yeah and I was like uh, well this chick can (laughs) what if I crash windows disassemble the code and show you where the bugs are and he's like yeah whatever so I did and then um, he said well okay we'll hire you but if you suck in two weeks we'll fire you and I was like gosh that's such a warm welcome (laughs) but I thought it doesn't matter though let me find out let me find out if I can do this you know I don't need to like make a bunch of friends here I want to see if I can do this So, uh, so that worked for so a while. So that was moving to Seattle. Yes, I was in Seattle. Yeah, anyway, so you Seattle deliberately after. strategically moved to Seattle, and that's when you worked in the bar and you got to know the coders. So you could almost see the culture there. You were yes. observing it. Yes, and I and I figured after breaking my vows, I'm going to get a burger, you know, <laughs> and I'm going to get a boyfriend. Okay, the two B's, <laughs> the two most important B's in a young woman's life, and that was a great place to get them. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway. So, how was your Microsoft experience? Um, it was eye-opening in that um, I, had, I, I thought that I had really worked hard because I had done 90-hour weeks, you know, working all the time to just pay to make my life work. But I hadn't been with people that were this smart, this intense, and this focused on changing the world, which was kind of amazing, you know? It was, we're going to make Windows a world standard, even though Windows was kind of the laughing stock of the technology world. And that's where I saw how Bill Gates declared victory as he stepped onto the battlefield. Because it's really easy to be confident with all the success behind you. But to be confident in the face of these tremendous odds where everyone's just mocking you. And he just kept saying, Windows is going to be a world standard. It's just a matter of time. And he kept saying that for six years. So that's what I people could say that was arrogance as well. Some people could say having that belief in yourself before anything's proved is is not necessarily a good thing. And and is there a fine line, right, between a bunch of confidence and arrogance? It's like, where does it cross over? 
And do we sometimes have to have that reality distortion field just to take on crazy challenges? Yeah. I don't know. Probably. We probably I think do. so. And I'd probably say you probably find that in a lot of, maybe I'd say Steve Jobs definitely had yes. it as well. And other people we can think of that just had an idea and didn't listen to the naysayers at all. Yes. Yes. And, and I, just one quick thing on Steve Jobs, because I, I want to be fair here and give him some airtime as well. Um, after I left Microsoft... I was a little disillusioned because it's like we were going to change the world and Windows did get on 40 million desktops and did become the world standard and that was awesome. But I didn't feel like deeply fulfilled. And so you can see this thread of like questing, you know. Yeah. Um, but also that questing is 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 part of what I was trying to avoid or escape with the with the leaving the order because I actually was looking outside instead of in. You know, so it's been, I think it's so interesting how sooner or later we have to call off the search, you know, (laughs) sooner or later we have to call off the search. There's nothing out there that's going to fulfill you. It's an inside job. And um, I reached out to, to Steve Jobs. I, I was sending him a FedEx like every few days. I was stalking him basically saying, all I need is five minutes of your time. You know, I'm a Microsoft engineer. You know, I, I really want to understand like, why aren't we changing the world? Because he wanted to change the world too. Like it's not, it's not working. And I kept calling his office, and I kept um, FedExing, and I was totally stalking him, and I was getting no response. And so one day, I finally I called, and his assistant put me on hold. And he gets on the phone. He's like, "When will you leave me alone?" And I said, "Well, all I want, all I want is five minutes. Seriously, I'll bring a timer. All I want is five minutes." And I and he said, "Okay, okay, okay." Puts me on with his assistant, books the time. I show up with one of those little egg timers. Oh, very good. Did, did your mom yes. have one of those? Yes. It goes, it goes, we still have them in yeah. some games. And it's know. kind of loud. Ticka, ticka, yeah, yeah. ticka, ticka, ding. Oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> so I brought my little white egg I'd timer. I'd say Steve appreciated that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because, you know, I was going to be honest. Yeah. Five minutes was five minutes. It was and right You must there. have practiced your five-minute thing, did you? What you oh, yes. Say? Oh, yes. And it was just asking him a couple of questions. And where was you know, this now? Palo Alto or somewhere? He was now at Next. Oh, he was so there So he was a little disillusioned. Of as course. well, yeah, yeah, John yeah. Scully had basically, yeah. you know, yeah. decapitated him, if you will, kicked yeah. him out of his own company. Mm. So I think that's also maybe why he agreed to meet with me because he was feeling that way too yeah, a little so bit. Yeah, so he recognized what you were saying. Yeah, so. yeah. So, so that was like lucky timing. Yeah. So turn the little timer on. We sit down. We're talking, and what was so amazing was very quickly he he like went into the future. And he was just, it was like, it was like the wind was in my hair and my like brain was expanding and, and he was talking about all this stuff, which, which if we look back now, it happened. he was, yes, it all happened. He was seeing 18 years into the future. How crazy is that? It was just like, whoa. So like he wow. was talking about things like we're going to have music in our pockets. We're going to yes, have all yeah, this yeah. stuff. It, yeah, yeah. He was, he was talking about what became the iPod, mm. the iPhone. Mm. You know, with the iPad, and it was just, it was nuts, and I was just like, wow, whoa, okay, I get it, this is, we're creating the foundation for all this, yeah, I get it, ticka, ticka, ding, and I go, okay, so, whoa, wow, back to earth, thank you so much, this is awesome, okay, so, um, I'm gonna go now, because, you know, the time's up, and he's like, sit down, I'm not done with you yet, mind blown, wind in my hair again, he brought me right back into it, 45 minutes later, he's like, okay, we're done. And I was like, oh, okay. Oh. 
and I kind of um, I got up with my little timer, and I was sort of like bowing, bowing and scraping, <laughs> walking backwards, like walking backwards, like with the queen, right? <laughs> Don't turn your back on the king, right? I'm walking backwards, kind of bowing, <laughs> walk out of the room, and I just sat in the car, and I was like. I couldn't drive for a while. I was just, I had to just kind of come down. Right. You mentioned Bill Gates. Tell us about that friendship because that's been quite pivotal in your life. Yes. And did it start then when you were at that very entry level kind of situation in Microsoft? Yes. It started um, when, uh, well, I mean, I met him very casually at this pizza the party. Things that they yeah, had, yeah. He, yeah, it was like we were eating pizza. He was sitting on the counter at somebody's house. We were eating pizza and drinking beer. And, um, and you know, somehow he remembered me probably because there weren't any women. <laughs> there were so many, there were so few women. And my email address was uh, T- to make sure that everybody knew I was temporary. Yeah, yeah. T- Chris C. Okay. Um, and I did eventually get fed up with Microsoft and just kind of being treated that way. And, and I left to go to Lotus, you know, which, if, Nobody remembers they actually invented the spreadsheet. <laughs> Poor Lotus. <laughs> Poor Lotus, I know. Darn it. Um, because I knew if I went there and did a bunch of cool stuff, then I could come back to Microsoft and get paid more and actually have more status. Um, that was the only way, though. And, um, and it was like 1989, and the Berlin Wall was coming down, and AIDS were, was becoming a real issue, and no one was dealing with it. And I was going to raise money for the AIDS walk um, in Boston. And, um, and I needed to raise a bunch of money. And I thought, okay, who do I know who has a bunch of money that I could ask to fund my walking, you know? And, um, and I thought, oh, my God, you know, Bill Gates. And I had a gay office mate, and he's like, oh, my God, you've totally got to go to Bill Gates. So I sent him an email because I knew Bill's email address because everybody did. Um, and... Um, and I said, uh, you know, if you donate to AIDS Action Committee, you'll win dinner with a fabulous blonde. And you met you. You were the and fabulous blonde. And I met blonde. me because at the time I was bleaching my hair. And if you guys haven't seen me, my hair is quite dark brown. <laughs> and I thought it would be really fun to be platinum blonde. Yeah. So I was bleaching it almost white. Um, and um, very quickly, I received a re- return email. And he said, how much? And I hadn't really thought about how much I was going to ask him for. And at that time, um, in my naivete, I thought, wow, $1,000 is so much. I'm totally going to ask for $1,000. <laughs> and um, he wasn't quite a billionaire yet, but he was very wealthy, okay. needless to say. I think he became a billionaire in the early 90s. Right. doesn't matter. A couple days later, I get a FedEx at my office. And it has a $1,000 check in it. It's a personal check from Bill Gates. My office mate, my gay office mate, of course, grabs it, photocopies it, and they're like photocopies being spread all over Lotus of this check from Bill Gates. And I thought, this is okay. You know, he's, he's going to forget. About the date. You know, about the date, yeah, yeah. The, about the dinner with the fabulous but, but blonde. Bill was a little bit of a player before he got married. He was... Oh, he was, yes. It's fair yes. to say that. Yes. Yeah. He was a bit of a playboy. Yes. Um, and just think about it. If you got kicked out of the computer club when you were in high school and no one would date you, Right? Once you had some power, it would be like, woo! You know? And that's what happened with him. What man wouldn't do that? Right? What woman maybe wouldn't do that? What woman wouldn't do that? Yeah, what the heck, right? You finally get your your chance. Um, So so basically, my my contract had wound down because I was a contractor at at Lotus, and I had emailed Bill saying, you know, is Windows 3.0 going to be all that everybody said it was going to be, you know, et cetera? And then I didn't hear back. So ultimately, I went back to Microsoft, 
And a few months later, I get this email with the subject line, I found you. And then I open it up, I believe you owe me dinner. How's tonight? And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. But something tragic had happened. And then I had gotten a little bit crazy with the peroxide. I was bleaching my hair too often because I didn't want to have any roots. So my fabulous blonde hair had actually broken off. And I was wearing a wig. So it was a fabulous blonde wig. Um, and I was pretty self-conscious about it. Like, whenever the wind blew, it would be like, you know, because like, you could see the edges. It's like, wig technology is better now. So, anyway, we, we did have the dinner. And um, and that began just kind of That began the talking, friendship, really. Yeah. Yeah. And he's been someone that's been there through your life, really, with all the different projects you've done as well. He's someone who can give counsel to you or you can give counsel to him. Is that that kind of um, friendship? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I mean, I wouldn't say that, we're, that we were, like, super close, but, it, but a time came. The last time I saw Bill, we were at the... Um, it was a birthday party in San Jose for the birthday of the personal computer. Okay. Okay. So it was, it was, I don't know, quite some time ago. Um, and what was sweet was that, you know, we saw each other, he gave me this huge hug, and he pulled back and he said, if there's ever anything you need, all you have to do is call me. So see, you know, here's the sweet underbelly of Bill Gates. We saw the sweet underbelly of Steve Jobs. And Melinda had never really liked me because I had like this little phase where I this dated Melinda Bill. Melinda Gates. Yes. No, you just, you're just glossing over yes. this little phase where you dated Bill. It was, was, very, it was like? super brief. Okay. Because he had a different path. He wanted to like get married and make babies, and I was like, no, I had my tubes tied. I want to like build companies. Yeah. I don't want to make babies. That's not my path. Yeah. And and um, I never was a contender, you yeah. know, with him. It was just like, okay, you're a geek. But Melinda just viewed you as somebody who had been in. in yeah, that, like an interloper yeah. or something. And when he was having this beautiful speech with me, if there's ever anything you need, right. you know, I'm here for you. And Melinda walks up. As we're like hugging and he's whispering this thing in my ear and I'm like, oh, this is bad. <laughs> and I pulled back and I said, we're good. We're good. You know, thank you. And your life is going in a different direction. And it was almost like the bowing, <laughs> the bowing and the backing up. You know? Because that's his wife. Yeah. Their future is together. I, you know. My time with Bo was done. I don't, yeah. like, hang on to relationships <clears throat> when they're done. It was done. It was clear. Okay. You know? Well, everything you've described and all the different experiences you've had show that that's something, like you said, questing. You've always been looking into this. What makes us tick? Right. Why do relationships work or don't work? How do we get the most out of work and the projects that we're doing? So you have written books yes. about all of this thing. So the one that yeah. you have now is Power Your Tribe, but before that you've had other yes. sort of explorations. So let's yes. go there first and see. So Rules for Renegades came out in 2007, and that was really about all the weird places, this, you know, Bill Gates experiences, etc., all the weird places that I learned about business. You know, when Bill and I broke up and I trained to be a geisha, which is a whole, like, mistake. It's like, you Why have to do due do diligence. I didn't what? do any due diligence. <laughs> because I was reading Vogue magazine and I saw a spread in a geisha and I thought, I will never be hurt again. Okay. I will be a femme fatale. I will be untouchable. All right. Anyway, okay. that lasted, like, very briefly until well, I really found out what the business model was. <laughs> I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Okay. Um, and then next was Smart Tribes, where we really started to talk about building a business with the brain in mind and understanding how resilience is actually created in the brain and how you can uh, bake, if you will, resilience into how you create your company culture. 
And so these things, these sort of um, the issues you describe in your books and, and the things you talk to companies about are really hot at the moment. Like they're, they're things yes. that business is really exploring. And yet at the same time, there are other companies that don't get it or feel like why would they be wasting time in these kind of surveys of their of their emotional sort of state of their employees right. can you explain why I mean I read something recently which says uh, in terms of profitability and productivity you know a very basic thing is that if you're the happier your workforce is the more those things are and you have a very clear thing about this that there's three things that make a happier or emotionally resilient more emotionally resilient workforce and tell us about those things they are yes. belonging and, mattering and, and safety. safety so go through the three of them because i think if you can describe it people listening will understand and they'll relate to it in their own place and work as well and and they'll be able to check almost whether they have Good. They have enough of those things. You and know? think about these also in your personal life yeah. and your personal relationships as well. Okay. And the products and services that you buy, we don't buy products and services, we buy an emotional experience. Yeah. How we want to feel. Mm. So Maslow was right. You know, we do at the end of the day, once we have food, water, shelter, warm, and Wi Fi, once we have those things, we really crave safety, belonging, and mattering. And one or more of them is most prevalent in a given context. Safety, freedom from fear, certainty, knowing people have our back. Belonging, knowing that we're not alone. We fit in. We have equal value with others. We're part of a tribe. Um, Mattering, knowing that we have unique uh, qualities that are valued. We are seen for who we are. We're not just a number, a cog in a wheel. And we have to actually track in a company what are people's emotional experience. You can do this by asking 10 questions, three for safety, three for belonging, three for mattering, one you know, for net promoter, would you recommend your friends work at our company? But with each of these three questions, we understand somebody's emotional experience. And that's why we understand if they're not as productive or if they're not as collaborative or if they're not taking risks or if, they're, if they are quitting, if we're having a retention problem. So as we understand this, we can then create a culture where we actually have that nice return on investment. And at the end of Power Your Tribe, and Smart Tribes as well, we have an, an appendix that lists all the ways that our clients actually get financial return from using our techniques. Often 22% increased profit per employee. Revenue growth of 25 minimum to 210% annually. People being 35 to 50% more productive. You don't need to hire more people. You need to give people the emotional experience that they seek. This is not babysitting. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Because yes. some people, you know, some leaders uh, that aren't really on this whole thing, they, they might think it is sort of namby-pamby kind of you know, waste of time, too softly, softly approach, and like you said, babysitting. But how would you counter that? Right, okay, thank you. Because with each of these cultural programs you roll out, there are success metrics. You know, there are goals. There are needle movers. So when we show people how to do this survey, that's not that's just the beginning, right? In our, in our coaching, in our consulting work at Smart Tribes Institute, 
what we do is once we do the survey, that's the very beginning, then we create a cultural game plan with success metrics. So management will say, okay, we want to have this increase in productivity, that increase in retention. We want to recruit this much faster. We say, great, here's the emotional experience you need to create. Here's exactly what's worked for companies just like yours. And they start to see results in 30 days, a lot more in 90 days, in six months, whoa, a lot of results in a year, wow, whoa. In two years, whole different culture. And you know, you talk about the survey. So this is like sending the survey out to the different teams in your work. Or I suppose you could technically do it within a family too. You could do it in any kind of sure. scenario. Yeah. And then by the results, you kind of gauge what what is happening in terms of, they say, this team might be lacking in belonging or mattering, and this other team might be lacking in safety. And then you can address... And you have strategies in the book to yes. address that. Yes, thank you. Yes, that was well said. And then you measure how effective those strategies are because you, you have to roll them out and give them some time. Then you retest, right? And we just call this assessment. We're, we're assessing the state, the current state of the culture. Most of our clients do this safety, belonging, mattering index, this 10-question assessment every 9 to 12 months because you have to give it some time. Some of our clients do it every six months, but that's a little brief. You know, you have to give it time. And what's cool is that start to think, everybody listening, start to think, what emotional experience do you crave most when you're with your financial advisor, right? Safety, belonging, or mattering. Many people would say safety. Mm. You know, they want to make sure don't mess the money up. Mm. How about when you're with your friends? What emotional experience are you seeking? Often people will say belonging. I want to, like, we're in this together. We're part of a tribe. And then how about your favorite person, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your spouse, your significant other, you know, whatever. Maybe all of them, maybe mattering, whatever's true for you. Start to listen to people and in their conversations, listen to what they're asking for. When people are upset, if they are spreading fear, if they're talking about how they're alone, if they're talking about disaster scenarios, they're probably asking for safety. If they are talking about um, isolating, if they're withholding information, if it's us versus them, they, they're asking for belonging. They're not experiencing it. If they're condescending, if they're arrogant, with the extreme, if they're bullying others, they're saying that they don't matter and they need to have that experience. And in Power Your Tribe, you understand exactly how to decode human behavior challenges and how to shift somebody else's emotional experience. Now, this means the leader has to understand that it is their opportunity to be of service to their people. Which again, again is something that people don't necessarily, right. some people don't tap into because they don't see that as that. They don't see it as a service. You know, that's something that as a leader they have to be giving to the people underneath them in terms of allowing them to thrive and allowing them to kind of be the people they can be. You don't often, there's not companies where there isn't that culture and there's some companies where there seems to be. Are you finding that as you go around communicating this? So two different visuals. Some cultures see the leader behind the people pushing them forward, okay, which is part of what you just described. Other cultures, the ones that we are creating, the leader is in front, going through the jungle, you know, with a machete. What do you guys call that? What do you guys call yeah, that? Machete. Yeah, machete. Yeah. yeah. You have another name here. Oh, right. An axe? No, it's like it has, it's like an a Irish side? name. Scythe? No. Oh, uh, we'll think anyway, about it. Anyway, <laughs> something hooked. A brule hook. A drool okay. Hook. No, anyway, no. it doesn't matter. So they're going through. Some of my Irish friends were like, you should say this other word. They're going through the jungle in front of their people, and they're guiding their people through the jungle with the path that they have cleared. That's how leadership works. The rest is management, herding people like cattle. 
What we're doing now is leadership. We're getting out in front. We're taking some of the arrows for our people. That's how we get great retention. That's how we get great performance. That's how we recruit much faster because we understand that the emotional experience of our people absolutely directly drives their performance. Mm. Tell me more about emotional resilience because you're, you're uh, talking about this leader who's you know bashing his way through the forest, the jungle with, a, with an instrument we can't remember the name of, but let's call it a machete. machete for now. <laughs> um, anyway, it's going through and... Um, you know, meanwhile, the, the other people are not, ha- you know, they're taking arrows for the people. That's what you said, taking arrows they're for the people. They're out in front. Right in front. But how, how are you creating resilience then? Are you, are you not too protective of the people behind them? Uh, thank you. So instead of the people running and screaming, they're like, we're with you, boss. You know, we're going forward together. So resilience has seven different aspects. But one of the most important things is first to stop resisting. You know, the things that are causing us pain because we spend a lot of energy on resistance and instead say we use consent. Consent doesn't mean approval. Consent just is, wow, I'm really stressed out. I'm feeling really overwhelmed, whatever's true. And now what would I like? So to stop focusing on the pain and to start focusing on the outcome that we want to create and moving towards that. Human beings are meaning-making machines. You know, maybe we see our, our leaders scowling and we decide, oh my gosh, she's never satisfied with me. I'm a loser. I'm just going to shut down. I'm going to do mediocre performance. We decided all that. That was meaning that but, we okay, made. Can I just stick up for the person who's feeling like that? Because sometimes they're deciding that because that's what's actually the, what the scale means. Maybe the scale sometimes means that that person is not um, right. you know, supportive of the person and is not seeing their goodness and is not encouraging them. So, I mean, I know what you're saying, that it's, it's better to focus on how do you get to the end goal, but it's hard when you're in a situation where you don't feel respected or you don't feel like right. somebody's acknowledging you to, to not take make that be your story, do you know? Right, and, and that taking stuff personally is challenging. That's why we want to back out and we want to say, how about if I ask my leader before I assume... You know, maybe she has a stomach ache. Maybe she is disappointed. But if I don't talk with her, I can't find out how I can do things differently. That can be scary for people to actually confront, yes. especially when they've created a, a story that says, "Oh, I, they don't think I'm good enough, and they, yes. they're actually fed up with me." And then it's like, well, then if I go sort of putting my head above the parpet and asking, it might yes. get worse. You know, there's that kind of fear. Can right. Be but what about that human connection of saying, "I want to be, I want to be a great employee. I want you to be so happy with my work." Can, can you let me know what I need to do? Because often, this is where we have to lead our, our leaders. What does that leader want? She might be craving safety, belonging, or mattering from you, and you're not giving it to her. It's bi-directional. So just like we want them to be in front with the machete, we actually have to support our leaders too. Okay. And communication is everything. That way we stop assuming and making up scary stories and we find out what they really need. Because maybe they're not getting enough visibility on the performance of the company and they're getting really scared. And if we can say, how can I be the best, you know, whatever, how can I give you the most visibility? They'll say, well, I really need a report that tells me what's going on because I don't know what's going on. I'm getting really frustrated. Ah, let's brainstorm on what could be in that report. What decisions would that help you make? How often would you like that report? What would it look like? Because I want to be of service to you. We want to make sure that we uh, that we understand that we're all in this together. Okay. 
Okay, so, together is a great word that, that brings safety, belonging, and mattering. Okay, together is a good one. Well, we had a campaign here earlier this year about repealing the Eighth Amendment to do with abortion, so that abortion became legal last May. And the, the campaign was called Together for Yes, so that's interesting. It was a very powerful word that they used. So, bottom line then, you've worked with lots of companies with this. It's working for a lot of people. What are people finding? What are employees and leaders um, in companies saying to you? What's the feedback? Uh, the feedback is, so So, just for some terminology, when we create a resilient team, we are firing the three most, firing up, lighting up is a better word, we are lighting up the three most important parts of our brain, the reptilian brain, the mammalian brain, and the prefrontal cortex. When those three parts of the brain are working together, that's called the smart state. The more people in the company, <clears throat> pardon me, that are in their smart state are, is called a smart tribe. Okay, so we're, cre- we're creating smart tribes. Smart tribes then have all this great performance. It takes, based on the company and where they start, right, when we do the assessment, where are they? It takes two to three years to create a smart tribe. As you're creating that smart tribe, you are seeing the ROI, the return on investment. You're seeing the proof that it's working. However, Leadership has to be engaged. They have to want this. They have to participate fully. Um, the team members won't be engaged if leadership isn't. So there's no magic here. There's hard work and there's a lot of love, frankly. Well, listen, what's going to happen next for you and what, what is your next plan with all your tribes and all your work? Um, well, this year we're working, in the year I know is almost over, we're working on creating um, a million emotionally resilient people this year. So we're getting close. <laughs> and um, we're creating as many millions of smart tribes by 2020 as we can. We're close to a million smart tribes. Um, and that is all over the world. And You're get, close to that now. Yes. Now, and what, think about this. You do, you create a smart tribe at work. You create a smart tribe at home. You create so one human. So these, it's like a domino effect. It's yes. happening all around. And yeah. like maybe you're on the board of a nonprofit, or you do some volunteer work. You're creating a smart tribe there. I mean, one person can create six, seven, eight smart tribes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you're happy with where you are at the moment, and you feel like you're doing what you should be doing, kind of thing. Because you've, yeah. you've been a person who's gone into so many different areas. Is this where you've landed now? It feels right. It feels like the culmination of all the work that I've done and now I'm bringing this into my nonprofit work as well yeah and just in a very short because I know we have to wrap up now if you're somebody who's in work they're feeling that they don't haven't experienced belonging or mattering or safety and they're feeling really unsure of how to proceed what sort of one piece of advice would you give them apart from buy the book and have a read of it because that would probably help and give it to their boss but um, what kind of advice would you give somebody who's in that situation Yes, I would say first look at your own emotional experience and look at what you are craving um, in that particular situation that has you unhappy. And then look at how you, look at the other people in that situation and what they're craving. Focus on giving them what they need and notice how the whole dynamic of the relationship changes. Sometimes you have to lead from wherever you are. Sometimes you have to lead your leader. 
Christine, thank you very much. Thank Brilliant you. advice. Thank you so much, Rishi. <laughs> That's all we have time for today. Um, I can recommend that book, uh, Power Your Tribe. It's really interesting and not just in a work sense, actually. It's very interesting in terms of relationships and family and other aspects of your life. So thanks very much to Christine Comerford for speaking to the Women's Podcast. Remember, you can subscribe to the Women's Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. Today's podcast was produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 